The Midnight Academy with Dr. Heather Lynn. I just, I'm very excited. You're just the type of person I love to talk to, somebody who's not only interested in the spiritual realm, but also the scientific and sort of bridging the gap between those two or the supposed gap that I think we've created. Can you can you tell me a little bit about how, well, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but why did you not go down a, say, traditional scientific path and what led you to spirituality instead? Or in addition to, I could say. Well, I was raised in a family of scientists and rationalists and was very much intending to do just that, go down a path in science. And I went off to University of Colorado in Boulder and was taking all the typical courses that you need to take to get rolling on a degree. And I was very interested in microbiology, which at the time was a red hot area of study. And it was the discoveries of DNA and how DNA worked and the molecule and the fact that genes were coded. That was all just totally cool. And I was very interested. At the same time, I was happily taking what was euphemistically known that as recreational drugs Mm-hmm. and having a thoroughly good time in my recreation. But one particular experience just really changed my entire direction. I had an experience in the hallucinogenic drug of this amazing sense of peace and well-being I felt connected to people in ways I had never felt connected. I felt really calm, harmonious, naturally loving towards other people. Nothing dramatic that anyone, I think, you know, from the outside looking in would have remarked on even. But what I felt inside was just so different from how I usually felt. And I had already had some inklings from things I had read. I was beginning to meditate at that time. So I, I kind of knew this was a possibility and was very open to it, but I'd never really had that strong and direct and powerful of an experience. So that really made me reassess what I was trying to do with my life. You know, what did I want to do? And where if you'd asked me before that experience, I would have said, well, I would, I want to be a, uh, an awakened scientist. I want to be a scientist who also understands human relationships, human dynamics. You know, I wanted to be a good person, but I also wanted to be a scientist. And then after that, I said, I don't care what it is <laughs> that I do. I want to have those kind of experiences regularly. And I knew that the path to that was not more drugs. Because I had a lot of friends who took a lot of drugs and they weren't paragons of spiritual enlightenment. They were kind of, you know, overdoing it and it wasn't, wasn't helping them. It was making them less able to live their lives. And so I, I knew right away that that was not a direction that would work. So that made me redouble my interest in meditation, which drew me to the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda, author of Autobiography of a Yogi. And in a 
number of steps over a few years, I ended up moving into the Ananda spiritual community, which is where I still live now. So that was almost 50 years ago we're talking about that this happened. And that has been my, you know, my main path in life is to meditate, commune with spirit, connect with spirit, express spirit, you know, be a channel for spirit to live in that consciousness. But I never did lose my interest in science. I never lost that fascination for the precision, the, the exactitude of the scientific process and saw that there were a lot of people who shared that love of science, but who were also spiritually inclined, who were writing books like the Tao of Physics with blinking on his name. But you probably know the book better than that. Fritjof Capra was the... Oh, yeah. Chop- yeah, Deepak Chopra. Not Deepak Chopra. Fritjof. No. Oh, gosh, I got that really wrong. Yeah, but this is a relatively old book now, 1969, I think. Oh, wow. That he wrote it called The Tao of Physics. Tao of Physics. I'm writing this down. I'm and, getting a, you know, a reading was list. Kind of a whole series of books like that that came out after it. And there was the, the movie, What the Bleep Do We Know? And mm. it all kept me fascinated and interested in the subject. And then that was combined with what was really a happy accident. I hadn't been drawn to Yogananda for this reason, but it turns out that Yogananda may have been the first author of that kind of work. His autobiography of a yogi, which was written in 1946 or published in 1946, has an entire chapter comparing the experiences of spiritual masters who can work miracles and the laws of relativity is put forward by Einstein. So this was, you know, a wonderful, happy accident, if you will, that the teachings I was drawn to for the purpose of going deep into spirit also had expressions of that same interest that I already had of wanting to find these connections between science and spirituality. Wow. So, was the uh, theory of relativity explicitly cited in his book, or was it just alluded to? No, it was uh, specifically cited. There's all oh wow, the law of miracles. Wow, I didn't. I had no idea that that was. I mean, that's the you said nineteen. He wrote in the 1930s? 1946. That he he was in America beginning in the 1920s, and he died in 1952 in America. But all of his teachings. And, you know, he's an Indian master, so you, you might expect that it would be full of Sanskrit aphorisms and Sanskrit terminology, but he really was very, very sparing in his use of anything that was scriptural or Sanskrit-oriented from India, because as he said, I didn't, I didn't come to America to Indianize people. I came to spiritualize them. Hmm. And so he used the Western vernacular to describe spiritual truth. And he also freely used theories and terms 
from all branches of science, from, from neuroscience to physics to medicine. They're really woven through everything that he wrote and all the talks that he gave. So this was just wonderful for me because I already was seeing things through that lens of how science and spirituality were complementary. Hmm. So do you think that if you would have by accident picked up, say, a Carmelite or a Jesuit text about Christian mysticism or a Sufi text, do you think that would have made a difference? Or how do you, how do you view all of the different pathways and denominations and, and things in that realm when compared well, to that, the yogic tradition? I think that the the guiding lights, the founders, the the fountains of inspiration and realization that started all those paths all had the same fundamental experience, that they transcended their physical bodies and the limitations of the physical world and were able to commune with and know spirit. But they're all individuals. They all lived in different cultures at different times. And so when they were explaining their experience to those who are interested, they use different words, they use different teaching stories, they do use different metaphors. But I think if you look deeply into their teachings, and particularly when they talk about their own personal experiences, that the similarity is what stands out rather than the differences. But having said that, you know, the question you ask is if I had gone into Sufism or into another path, <clears throat> would I have been able to see the same connections between science and spirituality? And I'm not sure that I would have. I think that... It is a hypothetical, it's a hard yeah. thing to answer, but you know. But I think Yogananda in particular wanted to make that bridge. So while I can now, with the strength of understanding that I gained from Yogananda's teachings... I can find the common points between science and any religion now, but hmm. because I have that basis in what uh, what he taught. So you've you've mentioned before about the the science of religion, and then you've mentioned the uh, religion of science, mm -hmm. and that really stuck out to me because you know I'm really. Clearly, I would consider myself pro-science. I wouldn't be one of those people that says follow the science as though it is something existential as opposed to a scientific methodology and a process. So I, I, I really can relate to the things that you talk about with scientific materialism and the problem with it becoming sort of scientism, like its own religion. I was wondering if you could, you know, speak on that a little bit and, and let me know, is it, because you've been looking into this for quite a while and have you noticed it getting any better or do you think it's getting maybe worse? Do you think more people are subscribing to now the religion of science or has it always just been that way? Well, I, I would say that. It is changing that there, there are increasing numbers of people who are interested in this connection between science and spirituality for their own personal reasons, which is that they have had personal experiences or that they can appreciate that there must be truths behind all of these spiritual traditions because so many people 
who embrace those teachings have similar experiences. So, so there must be something there. And I think people who are rational and intelligent will notice that. And so they have to be asking, where is its connection to science? And why isn't science, you know, more actively supporting it? So I think that change, sort of sea change is slowly happening. But meanwhile, I think the the hardcore center of science is still very materialistic. Mm-hmm. That their methodology, which makes them sound like they would be universal arbiters of truth, the scientific method, experimentation, gathering facts, other teams of science, other other teams of scientists gathering facts from doing the same experiments and correlating their findings. All this is a very powerful, very convincing system. But what is less known about science is that science doesn't apply that in all directions that it's very difficult to get funding or to get interest in pursuing subjects that are non-material. This is true. This is very true. So the the big one, of course, is consciousness. And that's central to spirituality, to religion, is that there is this higher consciousness of which we are all a part. But Science really shies away from it because they are wedded to only pursuing those things that can be measured by looking at matter and energy and the interactions between matter and energy. And they've transformed the world doing it that way, right? So my hat is off to them. I really, like you, love science. I think it's a powerful force for good. Because it took the kind of odd mumbo jumbo loose kind of thinking about how our world works and made it more <clears throat> systematic and methodical so that we have a much clearer idea of how the world in does indeed does work. So I think it's powerful, but somewhere along the way, probably in the mid 20th century, scientists and the, you know, the primary scientists and funders of science just would not look at anything that had to do with subtle reality. Anything by, by its very nature could not be measured as matter and energy. And so they tended to feel that it was, you know, not only was it not measurable, but because it wasn't measurable, it wasn't true. And because it wasn't true, anybody who believed in it was a para something or other, right? You've got, yeah. you've got paranormal, parapsychology, para this, para that. And whoever came up with the para label did a really good PR job for science because anything that is labeled paranormal or para whatever is immediately considered to be fake right? (laughs) By the vast majority of people. And those who are in those fields, who grudgingly wear the label of parapsychology or paranormal, know that there's 
lots of solid experimentation proving that subtle realities exist that are not based exclusively in matter and energy. But because they have this stigma, because they have this label, they don't get any real traction in today's mainstream communications. You know, something that I find probably annoying, pet peeve of mine, if you will, is that the focus on this scientific materialism and all of the methodologies and, and, and such, it's like it's held up there as the the way we find truth. And while it is a way to find truth and probably the best thing we have, you know, in, in terms of getting objective truth or something to measure, increasingly I found that non-objective means have been funded, encouraged, and whatnot in in science and research, like qualitative research. And, you know, I'm not against qualitative research by any means or mixed methods. I mean, as a social scientist, I think there is a level of interpretation you have to put on, you know, things so that you can make a narrative or try to try to understand. But increasingly, I found that a lot of the research that's published relies on more sort of esoteric qualitative lenses and different ways to reframe narratives. And and that's fine if that's a way to get to truth, but it seems a little hypocritical that it's okay for science to lean into mixed methodology and qualitative research and still claim to be the bearer of all things objective and measurable. So I think it's kind of, I think it's kind of hypocritical. And so I'm glad to see that more people are getting out there and doing their own research. You know, I know that's a played out phrase, but they are doing research. They're posting it for free in different places. They're going to academia.edu. And there's a lot of different ways to, you know, get the knowledge and uh, not go through necessarily peer review anymore, because as you probably know, the peer review system is very corrupt. And a lot of the research that goes through is not as valid as we would like it to be or think it could be. And there's a lot of research that goes under the radar and there's, it's just so corrupt all around. So I think that people like yourself, you've been doing this for so long, trying to get the word out there. It's, it's so important. And I think it's actually working. At least I've know I've noticed that over the past, maybe at least decade, things have been really, really getting, you know, talked about more publicly about how science isn't, you know, the system that is science is is corrupted and that there's, you know, alternative systems and new systems. And, you know, so I think it's an interesting time to be alive and I'm very hopeful for the future. My fear is that some people may take it, of course, to the extreme and then think there's no place for science. And then we'll have all these, you know, cults of personality and these different things creep up. So what, what, if I could ask, I'm very interested in this idea of gurus and people coming over during that period of time, it seemed to be that around the, I don't know, maybe when I would link it to, at least in my knowledge, Lavatsky and and the theosophist around that time, there was this big interest in, in Eastern thought and people coming over and teaching Eastern thought, mixing it a little bit, bit with Western thought. But what was the catalyst for that? Are, do you Do you know? And why did it gain so much attention? And why did these gurus come over and feel the need to teach everybody all the the interesting things that they taught them. Well, there's probably a lot of themes there that you could pick up on as how it how it came. And there's there's one just people were ready for it that in the early 1900s you you know people were just as intelligent and as aware as they ever have been. And yet they were being told that 
the various religious dogmatic messages that surrounded them were the only truths. And, you know, you just embraced them. And if you didn't, you were going to be, you know, suffering hell and damnation. And it was a hard sell by the 1900s. And then another thing you had, which I think is, you know, kind of an indirect path for this information to come to America was essentially that the British conquered India, took it over. And I think ironically is that the Indians took over the thoughts of many leading British thinkers in the process. So mm-hmm. in the long run, I think India conquered and Interesting. Britain didn't because Blavatsky and the others you're talking about were strongly influenced by people who had either been to India or lived in India. And India has had that tradition of personal direct experience through meditation for thousands of years. So for us in the West, it's like a new discovery, where in India, it's a matter of just passing on something to a whole new culture that had been around forever, as far as they were concerned. Mm. And then that made it through into, you know, kind of the intellectuals that the Plavatsky and her crowd sort of appealed to to begin with. And then I think America was just, just had good karma. What, you know, that it was a nation founded on spiritual seeking and whether that spiritual seeking found its way into Christian directions or any other, there was a thirst for spirituality. And so Yogananda was sent to the West by his teacher saying, you know, it's time. They're ready that your message will resonate with them because it's not, it's non dogmatic. It's all about personal experience, which is kind of in a way you could say that the scientific method applied to us as individuals. So if I give you a experimental apparatus known as meditation for you to go test whether what I'm saying is true, and you find it's true, you're going to be much more convinced that God exists than if I simply just tell you God exists, right? So yoga and meditation were eminently practical and eminently rational. So it really just took off. I mean, Yogananda is considered to be by many the, the father of yoga and meditation in the West because his arrival was fairly early in the 1920s. And he has been very influential for many other spiritual teachers, contemporary spiritual teachers. In fact, Phil Goldberg, who wrote American Veda, I don't know if you're familiar with that book, but it kind of charts a history of how Eastern teachings spread through America. And so he interviewed a lot of people who were contemporary spiritual teachers who maybe were Christian teachers, maybe they were yoga teachers, maybe they were Sufi teachers, just all kinds and types of paths. And one of the questions he asked them, all of them, was what book influenced you the most in your own personal awakening? And he said, 
without hesitation, almost all of them said autobiography of a yogi because wow. it had so many core concepts, core tenets of experiential spirituality explained in very clear English, American English, that made it so accessible to people that it was a big influence. They didn't all go on to become you know, students of Yogananda as I did, but it was highly influential. And that book has probably been shared more than any other book I've ever heard of. And it's already 20 million copies in print. So it's an extremely influential book and has spread through American spiritual culture very thoroughly. So I think that, you know, that introduced the notion of a guru to the West, really in a, its most positive way for the first time. Yogananda described it very matter-of-factly that everyone has an influence on us. And it goes beyond just words spoken or concepts shared. There's an actual exchange of vibration. There's an exchange of feeling. And there's the old saying that's been in American culture for decades, which is you get to be like those you live with. Hmm. And there's a real truth to it. And you see with children, children behave like their parents or parent, whatever their situation is. And it's not because their parent carefully and minutely told them how to behave in every aspect of their life. It's they absorbed it. They, they connected with their parents in, in nonverbal ways and in, in emotional ways and subtle ways. So the guru relationship is really about tuning into someone who knows God, who knows spirit as deeply as you can. Now, I didn't know Yogananda while he was alive. He was, he was gone even before I was born. I was lucky to have many, many decades with a direct disciple of his, Swami Kriyananda, who founded the Ananda communities and was able to have that kind of, you know, both overt and subtle connection to him. But I think that at its core is what the relationship is about, that you pick up more from an enlightened spiritual teacher than just what he or she says or does, that it's a, an ineffable, intangible connection that is, is transformative. And it's probably very transformative when that person's able to demonstrate and help you learn meditation because then you can have those experiences yourself and that is probably a very big breakthrough. Can you explain, you know, a lot of people hear about meditation, like, hey, you know, you're feeling stressed, you should meditate. And I know it's very in vogue to meditate. And I don't think a lot of people either know how to meditate or I know that there's different varieties of it. Some people even are afraid to meditate, I've heard, because they associate it with different spiritual practices and they're afraid of opening themselves up to that sort of experience as well. So you kind of mentioned in the beginning that you were drawn to this path because of using a hallucinogenic and that it opened you up to these experiences. But then rather than go down that path, you chose meditation. Can you really experience similar things through just meditation as you could through a hallucinogenic drug? Yes. <laughs> really? I'm so curious about this. I, I really got to know. 
Yes, but you don't necessarily experience the same kind of things. So the yes is can you or could you? But I think uh, for those who have had hallucinogenic experiences, sometimes what they found fascinating or you know part of the recreational fun was the ways in which it changed your perception you know that you could see auras around people that light just seemed so different to you than it normally was and you you know back in the 60s when i was doing it there was all this interest in trails you could see trails when light moved and mm-hmm. so it was all about perception and it was and how you perceive the light and the the world around you but that was really more of the recreation side. The, the deeper side was it changed how you felt. It, cha- it opened your heart. It settled down the normal neuro, neurological circuits that tend to fire automatically in your brain. It kind of puts them on pause so that you're not going on automatic. You're able, if, if you have a good environment in which you're having this experiment, it, it, this experience, it allows you to, you know, be more centered, be more focused, be more aware of yourself and the people around you. And that I think is the part of it that you can get to through meditation, that you, by becoming calm in meditation, by connecting to your deeper self, to your spirit, what you feel is that. You feel harmony. You feel joy. You feel love for other people. Without effort, it's spontaneous. You just get into the flow of being the better you because you've touched on it in meditation and it naturally comes through in in your daily life. It also improves your health, improves your concentration. But I think the deepest reason to do it is that you feel so much better. This is true. I I I, I tried to meditate you many years ago, as everybody should meditate, meditate. And I, I I was this kind of person that I'm sure you've heard of people like myself who sit there, try to calm their mind and close their eyes and then continually think, am I thinking? I'm thinking right now. Wait, I should be meditating. Is this meditation? Wait, no, I'm thinking. Stop yes. thinking. <laughs> you know. So I thought I can't meditate. This just isn't isn't for me. And so it took me a while to get back to it. But then I tried guided meditation, and mm-hmm. that seemed to really help open the door. And then once I used it, it was like training wheels. Once I was able to use the guided meditation for so long, then I was able to do it myself. And I, it it got better and better and easier and easier. And then I had all kinds of experiences and I was like, wow, now I understand why people think this is a thing to do, that it's not just deep relaxation. It is deep relaxation, but it's so much more. And I've only hit the tip of the iceberg. I'm not into necessarily transcendental meditation or all of these things. I've not reached any anywhere near like that. But just in my own practice, it has made a huge difference in my mindset, my my health, my stress levels. But I've had some strange things happen while I've meditated, and I wanted to get your thoughts on this. I've I've been just dying to ask you this. 
I have no other experience other than just this little bit that I've meditated. But in my meditation, there have been moments where I have seen all kinds of strange lights, you know, but my eyes are obviously closed. So it's like my mind's eye. I don't have very good visual visual imagery in my mind. So if, if, if I were to close my eyes and you say, imagine a flower, it's like, eh, it's kind of muddy. So I don't really have a strong mind's eye. So the fact that I could see all of these colors when I meditate at various points was intriguing to me. And then at one time I was meditating and I saw this very bright light and it was sort of in my mind's eye, right in the middle, like third eye kind of thing. And it got brighter and brighter and brighter. It was so bright. I felt like I had to tightly close my eyes, but my eyes were already closed and it was warm too and comforting, but it was so bright. It was the brightest light I've ever seen. And I thought, what was that? That's weird. And I don't know. And like I said, I'm more science-minded. I'm definitely spiritual. I, I have all of these interests in other things. So I'm not at all a, a materialist, but I have no explanation for that. And I thought, let me let me ask the expert on meditation as I consider you. Well, I have a lot of experience and I have talked with a lot of people who meditate and learned a lot about meditations. I wouldn't put myself even after um, 50 years of doing it in the expert category. But well, comparatively, <laughs> 50 what years you're referring to, I think, is one of many experiences that come naturally in meditation because what we're doing when we meditate in various ways that med- different meditation techniques are designed to do is that we're disconnecting from sensory input and disconnecting from awareness of the physical body, which naturally leads to connecting to more subtle reality. And part of subtle reality is light. And in fact, Yogananda described the what he called the eight manifestations of God. And they were the ones you might expect, like love, joy, peace, but they also included light and energy. So all of those are aspects of spirit, and therefore they're all aspects of who we are, because the kind of highest level of teaching that comes with experiential spiritual traditions is that we are that. We are spirit. So when we connect to spirit, we're discovering ourselves. And connecting to spirit is partly letting go, which I think you did. You let go of the body. You let go of the senses. And when you let go, what was there wasn't nothing. It was spectacularly more <laughs> than, yeah. Yeah. you know, what you normally get to experience. So you had this powerful experience of light. And I would just say that that was a divine experience. It's not the only divine experience that you're going to have. It's not the end all and be all of divine experiences, but it's a a strong encouragement along mm. the way to keep at it. It was fascinating. It was a really interesting experience for me because again, I was coming from the place of, okay, am I meditating? You know, and then finally was able to get to a point where at least I was relaxing and and yeah, just eventually this this happened and it was just it was so strange, but but it was a great experience. I, I'm not gonna I mean, it was weird and a little little disturbing, but it was 
peaceful and and reassuring at the same time. It was quite fascinating. And I'll just never forget that. I've not been able to do that again. It was just like a one-off and I, but I need to get back to like a meditative practice and try to maybe cultivate that sense of relaxation. But I could just imagine the Victorians and Edwardians and then their, their ways. And then, you know, having somebody come over and teach them meditation. And if any of them experienced something even like that or more, that they would have been like, whoa, I'm throwing off this whole puritanical, you know, <laughs> this mm-hmm. worldview and we're going to go all in because it's, yeah. it's definitely experiential and not just, you know, a, somebody reading something from a text, as you said. And. I think that's what makes it so compelling for people is that it's not just, hey, this book says to do this, or, you know, this is what happens after you die, or this is, but it rather you can have a connecting experience with something. And but, yeah, but, I think that's the heart of the what has all been sort of mushed together by the uh, people like the, you know, Pew Research, the the spiritual but not religious. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really the heart of it is that. They're spiritual because they're seeking experience, mm-hmm. but they're not religious in the way that they, you know, one tends to think of as, you know, going to a church and accepting a certain set of tenets and dogmas as your tenets and dogmas. It's more about what do I actually experience? Because until you experience it, it lacks a lot of transformative power. You can mm-hmm. become a good person by believing and doing things and being serviceful, but it puts you in another gear when you actually experience divinity behind the darkness of closed eyes or in in your heart, and you realize, wow, this is much more than just embracing it. I love that, the divinity behind the darkness of closed eyes. It's just beautiful. But I'd love uh, to take yeah. it as an original, but I stole it from Yogananda. Oh well, it's it's beautiful nonetheless, and that's uh, <laughs> I can understand then why that he's been such an impactful teacher for so many for so long, so much so that there's this community. Can you? So basically, is this like a commune? How did how does this exist still? I, do, I didn't realize that people still lived in communes. Is, <laughs> well, we don't look anything like a commune. I looked at the website, it looked gorgeous. It did not, I was thinking commune. And then I looked and it was like, oh no, community. This is beautiful. <laughs> well, the the sort of blueprint for it, the, the inspiring idea for it came from Yogananda. While Yogananda was alive, he encouraged people to create communities where meditating and and living together and supporting each other in your your spiritual practices could take place. And then this became the really moving inspiration for Swami Kriyananda. This was, you know, he felt this was his purpose that he had beyond being a disciple of Yogananda's that he was really meant to go out and help get these started. And he spent a lot of time teaching, uh, or uh, sorry, a lot of time thinking about forms, you know, what would be a successful form that would enable people to meditate and and live together successfully. And he very consciously did not choose a communal kind of form. He found from his visits to communes and his own kind of observation that 
a lot of communal living comes down to people debating about who should get what and how much mm. they should get. And particularly challenging when you have families, you know, the kids need new shoes. This was the example he would always raise, you know, as well. How, how much of a, an allowance do I get so my kids have shoes? And he didn't want to create a situation where you're basically spending all your time discussing and regulating and, and deciding around who should get what. Mm. So he chose what he called a, a village and an intentional village or an intentional community where everybody has their own job. Everybody can kind of make their own choices about how they raise money and what they do with that money. And that there would be a support for everyone in their spiritual lives, but that everyone would be responsible for their own living. Hmm. And so a lot of businesses were started. There were what you might think of as spiritually based businesses as well, but they weren't all spiritually based. There were construction companies. There was an incense company. There were all sorts of things over the years that come and they've gone as people come and go. And so what we have today is more like a, a village. You know, I have my own home. I raised four kids. I started a business doing web design development that lasted for almost 20 years, took me all over the world, uh, sat in boardrooms in Cisco and in KPMG and giant companies all over the place. My view of it was that I was making the best expression of myself from what I knew how to make into a honest, ethical business practice and, and business. And the people I attracted to it also had those values, but there was nothing even remotely communal about any of it, right? Hmm. That's interesting. uh, That's probably how I would venture to say that's probably a contributing factor to its success. I have some friends who thought they'd get together and and do sort of that communal living and they invested in property together. There was a whole lot of uh, discussion, as you said, about the division of not only resources, but labor as well. That was the thing that actually broke the whole thing up was the who's doing what and how much effort is being put into the food cultivation. And it, it was a the typical things you might find happening in actual communal living. And so, um, right. yeah. And I think there are hundreds of small groups who have been successful. I think so. And, I think a lot in California. Enjoy, yeah. Enjoy that. You know, you share all your resources, you share all your labor. But I've never seen where it scales particularly well. Mm-hmm. So here at Ananda Village, which is the first of eight communities that Kriyananda founded, you know, we have 200 people and 50 or so children. And there are other communities in other parts of the world, in Assisi, Italy, and in we have what we call our urban communities in Seattle, Portland, Sacramento, Palo Alto, down in LA, that have the same kind of structure as we do here at the village, but they tended to buy 
apartment complexes and then build that same kind of structure of interactions and people get their own jobs and take care of their own money. But there's a lot of support for meditation and spiritual life while you're sharing this apartment complex. So it is a model that can be extended into different modes, so to speak. But individual responsibility and independence is a core part of it. Wow, that's that's probably going to uh, be an important model moving forward, given the you know rocky nature of things in the world today. It's it's good to have a sense of community, and I think more people should get together and at least even in their neighborhoods try to get together and know each other and build those small communities. But it must feel very probably pretty. It must be They're pretty very good. Satisfying, yeah, yeah. So if I could ask this, this is going to sound like a really strange question, probably, but in your experiences with either the hallucinogenics or even meditation, have you ever come in, in contact or encounter with, with something that you may describe as an entity or entities? I have not personally. I know of people who have. And in a way, it's not surprising. The, the view I have of reality is that it is far greater than just what we can know through the senses and and an existence in this physical universe that there are subtle realms far more vast and far more complex than this physical universe and this is you know goes to the commonality of most religions that there are heavens that there are astral regions as they tend to refer to them in in indian teachings and astral just means light. So these are realms of light where they're non-physical, but uh, as Yogananda's teacher, Sri Yukteswar put it, you exist as a coordinated image of light. And that mm-hmm. there are far more people, you think of them as beings if you want, but they're just people who are living as coordinated images of light in this vast cosmos then there are people who are living in physical bodies. And in fact, we have simultaneously an astral body and physical body. So when we die, the physical body ceases to operate, but our astral body lives on and we're immediately in those astral realms. This is where the whole concept of us going to heaven, it, it got inserted into most religions, is because it's automatic. We go to these subtler realms. Now, there's the whole issue of hells, and but it's the same principle. Christians tended to get a little overzealous about the hellish part of the heavens, but the same basic rule applies is that we tend to go to realms in the heavens that match our vibration and frequency and interest. Hmm. So if you have really negative, really antisocial, really hate-filled vibes, you're going to end up in a part of the heavens where everybody's just like you. And it would be hellish. I would, I for one, would not like to be there. But all of this is to say that when you meditate and you open yourself to subtle experience, there's the possibility of making a connection with someone. 
Hmm. Um, that's, you know, the, the, the term is used from the other side, right. or however they describe it. But if you just think of this, the vastness of it and the perhaps trillions of souls that are in these various states of, of living that are non-physical, it's very possible that you could connect with one. And people do connect with their their relatives and dear ones that have gone on. And they're often very interested in making that connection. They really miss their loved ones. And they yearn for that connection. And those connections can happen. You know, there are mediums who can be bridges for people to make that connection to other people. Sometimes you can be too open and unprotected, and you can have a negative experience of someone from one of these realms you'd rather not go to, trying to, you know, kind of force themselves into your consciousness. One of the blessings of having a connection to a spiritual teacher is you tend to be protected from those negative kind of experiences. But reality is a lot different than we tend to think. There's a lot more going on beyond the physical body than most people even are aware as possible. Yeah, the uh, this is it's sort of the way you describe it. Sort of reminds me of simulation theory a little bit. That like not perhaps, familiar with that one. Or, well, so that we're living in a simulation. That's that oh. sort of yeah. So it's sort of like a holographic universe. You know, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. So. It, so you the, so you would say that heaven, hell, all of these different things could be described as different dimensions of reality, or yes. the actual I places. Mean, I think that the the physical universe, and there are potentially other physical universes. We know that from science, and we also know it from the teachings of people like Yogananda that this is a single bubble universe as it was referred to by Yogananda's teacher, Sirikteshwar, and that there could be many bubbles of physical universes kind of floating around in this vast energetic sea. And the bubbles are three-dimensional, where the sea of energy in which the heavens exist are two-dimensional. They're pure energy. So it's, you know, quite like that you could see the physical universe as a holographic projection from this two-dimensional energy world that is the heavens or the astral regions. Wow. That's 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 a whole lot of uh that's that's a that's a lot. And I could imagine that people from again the earlier times in the West would have been really shocked to hear anything like that. And it's also amazing when you look at these sort of Vedic texts and all of the ancient source material, how how much the ancients knew, you know, about the nature of the universe. And even if they didn't have the exact theories or the ways that we have to describe them or measure them, you do find that a lot of things sort of connect or go back to that or reinforce some of those notions. And I I did see recently somebody was going back. I can't remember who, and that's going to bother me. I'll put a link in the in the description to this uh, paper. But I, I saw a paper where they were using, they were trying to use theories from Aristotle to discuss quantum physics. 
But I thought that was really interesting because, of course, Aristotelian ideas, you know, are still looked at today as important and things like uh, rhetorical appeals and whatnot. But to put them towards hard science, so to speak, I think would have been looked at as unimaginable until more recently when you introduced these ideas of, you know, quantum realm and and things that are a little strange and weird. And so we're going back to the ancient material to see if, hey, maybe they knew something after all. And I was surprised to see that paper printed. But like I said, I'll put that in link in the description because I think it's fascinating. But I'm a uh-huh. big fan of ancient wisdom. I think ancient wisdom, there's, there's a way to get sort of received knowledge and uh, science can be used to to investigate that and measure that. But, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's more to, to reality than just the uh, physical principles. I agree. So your book, I, is there a new one coming out that I see or what is the latest one? What is your latest one? The most recently published is called Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain. Okay. That's the one that I saw that I was like, so that is available on your website and is that available on Amazon and everywhere you'd expect? Yeah, it's available everywhere you would expect. It's it's print, Kindle, and audio book. So how do you how have you been received when you've gone and talked to people? Do you, do you get received really well, or do you, do you have a lot of pushback from sort of the scientific materialist types? Well, anywhere I go and teach the people who come are interested in the message. So I rarely encounter anyone in that kind of situation who is is really there because they don't like what I have to say, you know, <laughs> that they don't like the concepts or just can't embrace them. But on the internet where people can, you know, leave messages for me or make comments on posts that I make on Facebook, et cetera, I occasionally get people who push back, but really not very much, to be honest. I think that they kind of realize there's, I don't know, there's there's not much for, for them to gain by, right. you know, speaking against something or writing against something that I have put forward. They have their own forums where they go and complain <laughs> about, <laughs> you know, crazy people equating principles of quantum physics with spirituality. Uh, But they don't really really come into my world very often. Well, that's good. Well, I think a lot of people are just ready for these conversations. Mm -hmm. I think increasingly more so. I think we're more ready than the Victorians, for sure. And I think not only are we ready, but we're in, in need of doing so because we are in some really interesting times and there's a lot of new discoveries every day, but it's also a time where we need to, I think, go inward a little more than this outward world of the internet where everybody is giving their two cents and then arguing and having that negative energy. But if we can just pull back from that, I know meditation, as I've said, is a a very helpful tool in doing so. If you could, if somebody was interested in learning how to meditate from just the beginning, what would you recommend to them? Well, I recommend it because I know it. And that is the technique that I offer in the Physics of God and in the Breakthrough the Limits of the Brain, and on my website, which is called the Hung Saw Technique. It's a very simple, straightforward technique that you use to just watch the breath. The mind, as you were saying, I was laughing along with you when you were saying you would sit there and meditate and say, well, am I, am I thinking or am I not thinking? <laughs> or am I thinking about thinking? Right. You know, that the, the mind tends to want to be engaged. 
Mm-hmm. So the principle of the Hong Sa technique is that you focus the mind on your breath and that as your breath comes in, you mentally say Hong, sort of like song, Hong, and you say on the exhalation, saw, as I as in mm-hmm. I saw him. So Hung and saw, Hung and saw. And you say it in parallel with how long the inhalation is or how long the exhalation is. You let that sound be drawn out in your mind. And you just watch the breath. If you find yourself distracted, going down some path of thought, you just bring it back. Don't scold yourself or worry about anything. Just bring it back to watching the breath. And then gradually, as you experience yourself very powerfully, you want to bring more and more of your focus to the point between the eyebrows. So even as you're watching the breath, you kind of watch it from here. And this is the seat, the natural seat of concentration in the kind of inner body, the inner nervous system, the inner subtle body. And if you do it regularly, it gets easier and easier to just relax into it. And your breath will slow down automatically. You don't want to try to control the breath at all. There's no goal. You're not trying to stop the breath. You're not trying to make the breath more shallow. Any of those things can happen. But really what you're trying to do is relax and just let the breath breathe as it will. And to keep saying hung and saw. Now, hung and saw are Sanskrit words, as you probably would have guessed. You can substitute them with I am spirit. I am spirit, I am he, I am bliss, and it will do the same thing for you, that you're just trying to get out of your habitual flow of stream of consciousness thoughts and get the mind to quiet. Hmm. And when it does it, And when the body becomes more still, which it naturally does as the breath naturally slows down, you feel that relaxation more deeply. You feel that peace. You feel more centered in yourself. So this is what I recommend. There are other meditation techniques that I also practice, but that was the one I started with. The teachings of Yogananda include other techniques, one, for example, called the Om Technique and another called Kriya Yoga, which he talks about a great deal in the Autobiography of a Yogi, that are more powerful techniques. And if you get going in this direction of practicing the Hansa technique, you may find yourself wanting to learn these, but you can go a long way with the Hansa technique. You can go very deep with the Hansa technique. You can actually achieve states where you are breathless, where you're Breath is just relaxedly stopped. As soon as you move or worry about it or think about it and your breath comes rushing back in, <laughs> there's no danger that you're going to you know, pass out or anything. But you can get to that level of relaxation where the breath relaxes too. 
And when you do that, your heart slows down. You have this tremendous surge of energy coming into the heart and into the mind that had been going out, keeping the lungs bellowing and keeping the heart pounding. And it's, it's wonderful. You feel that manifestation of God as energy or as peace because you've just stopped being bombarded by all the perceptions and experiences of the physical body. Mm. When we do that, we feel spirit. That's oddly what I'm about to say right now will strike you probably as an odd thing to say, but near death experiencers have accidentally stopped breathing and have focused their mind. Hmm. And when they stop breathing and focus their mind, they're instantly in higher reality. So that's the potential that meditation has, which is if you become perfectly still and you become inwardly absorbed, what you experience is beyond the body, beyond the physical universe. It's in this cosmic realm of heavenly energy. Wow. And it's, it's natural. You don't have to work at it or, or visualize it or try to make it happen. If you just try to relax and be centered in yourself, these experiences will come just like yours that you described of the light building at the point between the eyebrows and feeling wonderful. That was the best part of what you described, right? Was that it was, you it was felt warm, you felt good and it, is something you would welcome to have happen again. Yeah. And it, it wasn't good in some sort of like manic way. Like, ooh, it was just peace, like extreme mm-hmm. peace and comfort and reassurance. And, but it, not even in a way that could have been articulated. It was just an experience and I'll never forget it. And so it, it had me believing in the, the merits of meditation, but we'll add that to the list. So in other words, you know, to meditate because it is good for your health, it's good for relaxation, but you can also catch a glimpse of the other side, perhaps. And Yeah. And yeah. eventually you can catch more than a glimpse. Wow. You, know, you can feel yourself immersed in spirit. Wow. That's that's amazing. It, thank you so much, Joseph. I'm I'm going to I'm going to go back to my meditation practice. Now you've inspired me so much, and I hope that everybody else gives it a shot too, and, you know, take some time to read not only your books, but especially The Physics of God, that one. That's that's one of the best books I have ever read on the relationship between consciousness and physics itself. So the, a good marriage between the two, but I love the the religion of science and the science of religion component of it and the commentary there, but definitely recommend. And also a lot of good books to read your wealth of information. I wrote down a great reading list and I'll add those to uh, the, the description in the video as well. And so if anybody wants to go on a journey and read these books and and follow that same path, you know, it'll be available, but I want to thank you so much for taking the time to come on here and share all of this information with my audience and uh, and me in particular. I was I was so happy to be able to pick your brain because you're so so wise on these issues and you're so experienced. And so, thank you so much for ha- for for coming on today. And it's just been well, great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for doing your show like this that shares this information with people. It's a real service, a needed service. So. I uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to to have 
shared things with you. Thank you so much. As well. You're welcome back anytime. And so uh, standing invitation, I'd love to have you back.